I uh, spent the week at YWAM uh, this last week uh, teaching at one of their discipleship training schools. And whenever I come back from YWAM, I'm always physically exhausted and uh, emotionally blessed. I, I come back on kind of a cloud. And um, I, I just want to say this, that, that uh, the older I get, the more, YWAM is Youth with a Mission. It's a huge organization started in the 60s by Lauren Cunningham, and it's just been anointed. There's now uh, outreaches in 149 uh, countries, and it's all teenagers, or almost all teenagers. Uh, And it's beautiful. And you go to these conferences, and you see kids sold out, worshiping God in masses. Uh, There's nothing more beautiful. And I find that the older I get, the more of a passion I have for youth. And I think what God's doing in my heart is, is just raising up the urgency of passing the baton on to the next generation. Uh, This is the church. And my dream, and I'll just say it uh, one more time, my dream, and it's really a dream that we've really owned here at the church, it's it's our dream, is is to see thousands upon thousands of young people come into the reality of the love and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And to have a sold-out relationship. Praise God. Amen. And it is going to happen. I don't care what it takes. I, I, whatever the price, it's, 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 uh, it's worth it. Uh, that's got to happen. When I was down there, I, I, I went down there with a, a puzzle in my mind that I uh, wanted to preach on, but I, I couldn't get clarity on. And I got clarity on it this week, and that's what I'm going to be sharing here this morning. I, I, there has just been such a presence uh, in all three services. I, I have honestly felt I would describe it not as drunk in the spirit, but certainly tipsy. I, I, I just I, honestly, I'm, I'm just sort of out of myself. I, I, uh, there's just been such a presence in the, the worship service, and God's got something very unique in store. The, the puzzle that I was thinking about was. Uh, had to do with this. Dallas Willard in chapter 7 of Renovations of the Heart, and we're kind of using that book as a springboard for some of what we're talking about in the discipleship series that we're doing right now. Uh, In that chapter, he describes discipleship as the process of overcoming duplicity, overcoming dividedness. I want to speak on that. Uh, I want to read James chapter 1. Verses 6 and 7, which is the most explicit verse that addresses this issue. Where James says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Picture that. It's driven and tossed by the wind. Whichever way the wind's blowing, that's where the wave's going to go. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let's talk to God for a minute about this. Uh, Father, Abba Father, we are, uh, we confess double-minded and often unstable in a lot of ways. And our prayer, God, is that you'd make us single-minded this morning with an all-consuming, overriding, overwhelming passion for you. Lord, what I'm very aware of is that uh, words, words are not going to come close to doing what's in my heart to do, to saying what's in my heart to say. And so I have to, in a really extreme way right now, trust you and your sufficiency to make up the difference. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you be present, working in all of our minds and in all of our hearts. And I also want to just, uh, Lord, we together right now want to cash in some of our chips as kingdom people and leverage it on this message right now. And, uh, and come against anything in the spiritual realm that would want to distract or confuse or dissuade us. 
Lord, be a hedge of protection, a mighty fortress around uh, this place, around every heart right here and right now that we may hear uh, more clearly than we've ever heard before and, and see more clearly than we've ever seen before. Uh, the truth of who you are, and God, to allow that to sink into our innermost being and overwhelm our hearts and transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To doubt is to be double-minded. What double-mindedness is, uh, this duplicity, what it's most fundamentally about is, is holding at one and the same time contradictory, conflicting, incompatible faiths. Let me explain this. Faith, we've seen in, in this series, is the substance, the mental, concrete representation of what you expect to have happen. This is right out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It is the, the concrete representation, the words, the pictures, the movies that you're running in your mind about what you expect to have happen, and that, that confidence that comes from that mental representation. It's the confidence that it shall be so. When we hold different faiths, when we have different representations in our head, uh, different expectations, it causes double-mindedness. We're torn in two different directions. We desire conflicting things. We do things we wish we wouldn't do, but we desire them. There's, 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 there's duplicity. There's a lack of integration inside of us. Uh, I have shared this in this series before. I want to do it again. Uh, I, I try to live my life with faith in Christ and faith uh, that the, what the Bible says about me is true. And so I try to be very intentional and vigilant that the movies I run in my head about me, about my life, about the future, about every particular thing is consistent with the truth of who I am in Christ and the truth of, of, of who Christ is. But it happens to me sometimes that in certain situations, other faiths get triggered. Other pictures get triggered. Other images get triggered, which create conflicting feelings. For example, the circuit breaker breaks. I've said before, it goes off. On the way down there, as I look back on it later on in prayer, I realize that I was having a very different faith, one that was not consistent with the overall faith in my life. Because what I was seeing in my head was, was about failure, but about disappointment, about my value, about how I am uh, incompetent and I'm a disappointment, and uh, faiths about, about how swearing supposedly helps these situations. So it creates a strong feeling of frustration and a strong desire to swear, and I use usually do. And see, what that, that's inconsistent with who I am. That's double-mindedness. It's a lack of integration. And insofar as we are not integrated, insofar as we have this duplicity, we are unstable. We are, we are like a wave on a pond that it blows whichever way the wind blows. We're determined by circumstances rather than by our identity in Christ. If uh, the lights are working well, boy, I'm walking in Christ real good. As soon as the lights go off and i got to fix something, all of a sudden, the wind's blowing me this way. To the degree that we've got renegade microchips planted in our brain uh, that God didn't put there and do not say the truth, to that degree, we're vulnerable to the triggers of our environment. And, and, and when someone looks at you a certain way, you're mad. And someone says something, you feel this. And someone does something, you feel this. And you're having a good day, you're up. You're having a bad day, you're down. We become thermostats rather than thermometers. We're unstable. We're a ship in the, in the middle of a storm, the storm of life. And we do not have a singular focus, a singular vision. Our light, our, 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 our scope isn't on the beam. We're not, we're not uh, swimming upstream going against the currents. We're being defined by the currents by the past, what's been said to us, by the media, by the culture, we're unstable in all our ways. 
Because we don't have a singular faith, a singular vision. We're, we're involved in duplicity. We're double-minded. And James says that to the degree that that is true, we do not receive from the Lord. Because to the degree that that is true, the truth of who we are is not experienced. It can't be. What is experienced is the lie of what someone else said that you are or what the situation says or the circumstance of, of, of your life. We are drifters, just going over here. Most people in life are drifters. They're just being defined by this, that, and the other thing. And James says, therefore, you're unstable. And this is why the Bible consistently, repeatedly, and unequivocally locates the center of transformation in the renewing of the mind. That's why we've had this discipleship on the mind the last uh, several weeks. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 2. Take every thought captive to Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Live in, dwell in what, the thought of what is true, what is just, what is beautiful, Philippians chapter 4, 8. But as a number of you have told me, and as I expected it to be the case, because I know it from my own experience, this is difficult, isn't it? This is difficult, isn't it? We can be honest here. Do you find this to be difficult? Of course you do. <laughs> because we've been programmed by the matrix not to do this. Uh, we are so unaccustomed to paying attention to what we think. And to the degree that we do that, we're, we're, it's very hard for us to be vigilant over our heart as we preached last week. Uh, we're used to letting our thoughts carry us. Whatever We're used to those triggers just going on. We've lived with them all of our life. And to become attentive to that, it's just hard to remember to do that. This is the most formidable task in Christian discipleship. And the question, the puzzle that I went down to uh, YWAM with this week was this. How do you break that cycle? Because it seems like, it seems like you've got to be single-minded to take every thought captive, but the purpose for taking out every thought captive is to be single-minded. So we're caught in a chicken-egg thing here, you know? And so I was talking to the Lord about this, and, and, and he, gave me a, he gave me a lot of clarity about it. We are spirit, soul, and body. Our soul are our thoughts and emotions. And what's got to break, what has to continually break this cycle, this chicken-egg cycle, uh, in order to give us the vigilance, the urgency, and the passion to uh, uh, continually take thoughts captive, that comes not from the soul, it comes from the spirit. It comes from our innermost being. And what inspires our innermost being is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as I was talking to the Lord about this, how do you just, you know, inspire people with a fire, inspire myself with a fire to remember to do this and to be diligent about this? The answer the Lord gave me was, he says, show them me. Show them my singular vision for them, and that's the one thing that will ignite their fire to have a singular vision for me. And without that passion, without that all-consuming vision, without that beam in the middle of the storm, that, that, that lighthouse that we can direct, give direction to, we're not going to have, we're not going to have the power, the strength to be taking thoughts captive. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord. Now he's talking about a seeing in the mind there. If you read uh, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, it's very clear. He's talking about what we see in, a, in, in our God-anointed mind. As you see, as you behold the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, talking about your mind, you're transformed into that same image, into that same glory, from one degree of glory to another. What Paul says is that as you behold the glory, you take on the glory. The fuel, the fuel for our transformation in our life, the gasoline that the whole thing runs on, 
is a vision of the glory of God that needs to be forever before us. And the beauty of that draws us and inflames us to have this, the vigilance to pay attention to how we think and how we live so that we are brought in conformity with that vision, with the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord says, show them my vision. And that's what I want to do here for the next half hour. The vision starts in Ephesians chapter 1. The vision of God for you. Which says this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless before him in love. I love this passage so much. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. This just turned him on to do this. And it's to the praise of his glorious grace. From the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, a, a lot of people, I can't get into this right now, but, but a, a lot of people get confused by this passage. Uh, they think that it means that God chose us as opposed to someone else to be in Christ, as opposed to being in Satan or going to hell. And so from the foundation of the world, God said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you're in, and eeny, meeny, miny, mo, you're out. And that creates a, a rather terrifying picture of God and a terrifying picture of life and raises all sorts of theological conundrums. And so now, instead of the, a beautiful verse, which again is, is a rather terrifying concept with a lot of theological questions. But I submit to you that no one in the first century, no Jew in the first century, would have ever thought of interpreting that verse that way. They had a, what's called a corporate view of election. And when, when uh, God says, I chose you in Christ from the foundation of the world, they knew what he meant. It was something like this. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that uh, Toke over here, hi Toke, uh, Toke says, uh, you know, Greg, when did you decide that we would listen to this sermon? And I would say, well, Toke, it was decided really way back on Tuesday that you were going to listen to something like this sermon. It was, you might say, predestined for you to listen to uh, this sermon. And so she can stand up and say, it was decided uh, on Tuesday that we were going to listen to this sermon. And that's true. We'd all go amen to that. But it wasn't decided on Tuesday that you in particular were going to listen to this sermon. Uh, it was rather decided that whoever shows up here to church is going to listen to that sermon. But now that you're at church, you can say it was decided that we would listen to that sermon. Are you following me on this? My heart is that everybody in the world would listen to this message I'm going to give this morning. I wish this auditorium was full of the entire earth, but you guys showed up. And uh, so you're going to get this sermon. So also, God's heart is that everyone would be in Christ. Everyone would just be subsumed by his grace. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, but now that we're in Christ, we can say, here's what was chosen for us in Christ, that we'd be holy and blameless in his love. So the Bible says that God, in 2 Peter chapter 3, God is not willing that any should perish. No, his heart is for all people. It says in 2 Timothy, or, or 1 Timothy, that he, he uh, wants to be the savior of all people. Everyone, he wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. His heart is towards everyone. What he's predestined is that whoever is in Christ Jesus will be holy and blameless. But he doesn't predestine some to be in and some to be out. He just predestines that whoever's in is going to be holy and blameless. Hope that, hope that gives clarity to the thing he's talking about. The beauty of the passage is that it shows God's singular vision from before the creation ever began. What was on God's heart before the creation ever began was this vision of a bride who would be holy and blameless in every way. A vision of a people whom he would love and would love him back. God, from the foundation of the world, when you were still a possibility, he, was, he, he had you as a part of his vision. 
And from the moment you were conceived, from the moment you were born into this world, he has been working to bring you into this uh, in Christ reality uh, that, so that you would be part of his own and be transformed by his incredible love. God is, uh, one person has described, David Wilkerson has described, God is the hound from heaven who just hounds you, chases you. If we understand the biblical portrait of things, we'll get this. It's kind of like this. It's like God at every moment of our life comes up to us and says, uh, you know, I, I want you to know that I love you with an everlasting love and I have done and will do everything possible to be in a, in, in a lo loving relationship with you where I am loving you and you are loving me and I want to dance with you throughout eternity. But what, what each of us does is we say, no thanks, and we run the other way. We want to go our own way, do our own thing, call our own shots, follow our own desires, and seek after our own pleasures. So we run away. God dives after us, tries to grab us by the feet, catches a shoestring. We tumble over. He crawls to get on top of us, but we kick him off and we go off running. And he chases us into the woods and through the cities and in the valleys and up on the hills and, and in wet places and in dry places, through the ups of life, through the downs of life. He's persistently chasing us like that guy in the last of the Mohicans, just pursuing us uh, with all of his might. He chases us finally into the desert of life where there is no water and there's hot sun and we're finally getting depleted and coming to the end of ourselves. And we keel over from exhaustion. We fall on the ground, but we still bury our face in the sand just because we don't want to look up. He jumps on top of us and now he begins to pry our head around. Come on, look at me. He grabs us. He, he gets us by the chin. He looks into our eyes and says, do you know how much I love you? It's about at that time that we proclaim, I found Jesus. <laughs> I found him. I didn't know that he was the one who was lost, you know. But you see, at every moment, he is chasing us. And as I look back on my life, I can see the hound from heaven was after me. Uh, from, from the very start. There's never been a time where he hasn't been pursuing me. I usually didn't know it at the time, but as I look back on it through the eyes of, of, of my faith and as I've gotten to know him, I can now look back and I can recognize times where he's been there. When I was a little boy, uh, so lost, so confused, playing by myself out in the field, he was there. I wasn't alone. I thought I was alone. I felt alone. But he was there. He, he, was, he was right by my side. In times where I was crying for some love, he was there administering love in ways that I didn't discern. When, when I would get mad and run away into the woods all by myself, I wasn't by myself. I just loved thinking of that. I wasn't by myself. He was there. In fact, one time, I'm just absolutely sure of it. Lock me up if you wish. But, but I, I, at the age of six, just so, so down, my face hurting from what had just happened to me. And I fell asleep out in the woods, and I woke up to the sound of angels whispering in the trees, whispering my name. He was there. He was there. I had such a peace. It was the wind blowing through these trees, but I heard him whisper, Greg, boy, yeah, Greg, Greg, Greg. And, and it just gave me assurance that somehow, some way, it's going to be okay. That was him. That was him. He was back there. And later on, when I grew up a little bit and became rebellious and started living out of my anger, he was there. Uh, when, I, when I looked at my first porn magazine, he was there saying, don't, don't, don't do this. It's gonna, don't go down this road. But see, I was running in the other direction. And I was seeking, when I started getting to my silly, pathetic ways of trying to get life, trying to get some attention, trying to be a rock star drummer, trying to do this, that, or the other thing, he was there waiting for me to go out into the desert and fall on my face so he could jump on me. But I was still pretty young and had energy to run away. 
And when I got involved in drugs, his heart was breaking, but he was there. And this is a God who will, who, who will do anything to turn our heads around. He'll sink to any depth. And he even used a drug experience in my life to really begin to wake me up to the reality of what's going on with drugs and slowly begin to turn me uh, towards him. There was a Rory Jordan in my life who was a, a, a young man, a, a wrestling star that I admired so much, just a total stud, you know, state champion kind of a guy, and, and, and he turned out he was a Christian. And I just couldn't believe that a stud like this could, could actually believe this nonsense. And he witnessed to me a little bit, and I laughed him off, but a seed was planted. God was there. Hey, he was moving around in the people who, who, who were surrounding me. There was a teacher who unusually took an interest in me when everyone else just thought I was a burnout. She, 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 I caught somehow she, she uh, paid attention to me and, and said, Greg, you're a philosopher. And I didn't even know what that was. But, but I began to read for the first time in my life and the neurons in my brain began to you know, wake up and I, it began activated. And that also was used to kind of begin to turn me towards Christianity. Came in contact with a young lady just walking down the hall, happened to walk down at the same time. She was a backslidden Christian and she was kind of cute and we started going out and she invited me to church to win a blow dryer. She told me that. She says, it's a silly church. Whoever brings the most friends gets a blow dryer or a curling iron or something like that. And so I wanted to help her out. I, I was looking to score points with her, you see. Okay, I'll help her get the blow dryer. And then, you know, okay. God will use any means. He doesn't care. He spoke to Balaam through a donkey. You know what I mean? He, he'll stoop to any depths. But see, he, at this point, I was starting to fall on my face. And he was starting to fall on top of me. And I went to a, a service a couple weeks later. God just was, was gripping my heart. And, uh, and uh, he began to turn my face around. A young lady uh, at a Bible school just read this sermon, so scared, so nervous. She was just up there stammering. And, and I have no idea what the sermon was about. But you know what? God was using her. God was using her and, 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 and turning me around. And I went up to that altar, and he met me in a powerful, powerful, powerful way. The hound from heaven finally was lapping my face. <laughs> oh, if that metaphor works for you. Is he's been chasing me all my life. All my life. He's always been there, pursuing me. And then even after that, it's not like life was a bed of roses after that. I, I, I lost my faith about a year later when I went to the University of Minnesota, but this hound wasn't going to give up on me. He worked too hard to get me. And so even though my head was so confused and full of just uh, trash and questions and wrong ideas, he was pulling at my heart. He just would not let me go. He'd make me too miserable to go on uh, my own merry way. He, he was in love with me. He was pursuing me. And through grad school, sometimes I'd get so confused, but he was always there. And through the struggles of life, marriage struggles and other questions and problems God has always been there he's a faithful God he's a friend God he's always been there chasing you holding on to you he's the hound from heaven and what blows me away is that he has had that plan in place from the foundation of the world. And if you think my theology uh, doesn't agree with that, you don't understand my theology. I could have gone in different directions. I could have made different choices. People could have made different choices. But there just would have been a different plan. He had that plan in place as well. He's an infinitely intelligent God. And so as he's playing this chess game of life with Greg Boyd, he's knowing from the foundation of the world, okay, if he goes here, I'll put that person in place. If he goes there, I'm going to put that person in place. Whatever this guy does, I'm going to get him. I got him cornered. He's checkmated, you see. He's going after me. This is a singular vision that our Lord has had from the foundation of the world. The vision 
to be in relationship with you. I'm going to get me a people, and I'm going to love them, and they're going to love me back, and we're going to, they're going to be invited into the inner circle of the intimate trinity, and we're going to dance throughout eternity. And he's been chasing us throughout history, and he's been chasing us all of our life. He was chasing us on the cross. He was chasing me on the cross. It says this in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold the glory of God, he's saying. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding the shame. What was the joy before him that led him to put up with the cross? The joy was the dream, the vision that's been driving creation from the word go. And it's you and it's me. And it's his dream of living with us throughout eternity. And with you in mind and with me in mind. And it's not like, it, 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 you know, it, it's you individually in mind and me individually in mind. It's not like God just looks at the mass of people and says, I have all of them. Rather, his, he's infinitely intelligent. He doesn't have to divide up his attention. Every one of us has got all of his attention. So every one of us was the joy set before him that, that led him to the cross. And it was that joy that caused him to disregard the shame. To not have any regard for the shame. Yeah, there's shame, but I don't give any regard to that. Oh, so what? That's what it means. Yeah, there's shame, but so what? Look what's ahead of me. Look at the joy. Look what I get in return. I get to live eternally with Greg Boyd. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of pain, but so what? I, 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 I got my eye. My vision is steadfast. Whatever it takes by any means, somehow, some way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in a relationship with him. And when they're whipping his back, he's saying, so what? I disregard that. When they're putting a crown of thorns on his head, when they're piercing his side, when they're spitting on him and mocking him and putting a fake robe on him and jeering at him, he's, he, he has no regard for that because the prize is worth it. And what is the prize? It's me. It's me. And he goes to the cross and they put nails through his hand and nails through his, his ankles. And then he takes upon himself all the sin of the world, the hell of the world, the pain of the world, all there in that moment. And he doesn't have any regard for that. Why? Because the prize is worth it. The joy is worth it. And what is that joy? The joy is the love relationship, that, that, that vision he's had from the, from the word go in this creation. It is you. It is you. It is you. He loves you. He loves you. How much to that degree? He loves you. He's been pursuing you. He's been chasing you through the good times, through the bad times. And those experiences where you thought you were all alone, he was there. He has been thinking about you from the foundation of the world. He was thinking about you at the cross, and he's thinking about you right now. You've got a, per you've got a being who's crazy, mad, insane love with you, who's never stopped thinking about you. From the moment creation started, he was there. All of your life he's been there. You are loved by this wild-eyed, passionate God. There is no love that compares to this. I've never been loved like this. It overwhelms me. It just, it just, it, it, it gets in, in my being and I can't deal with it. It's like, I, how do you say it? How do you express it? How do you get words for this? It's too great. It's too glorious. No wonder the, the, the passage says this is, this is to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, to the praise of his glorious grace. His grace is put on display when you begin to think about what this creation is all about. There's a lot of weird stuff that's spoken of in, in the name of the glory of God. You know, for the glory of God. And then there's a lot of nasty stuff said. But this is the glory of God. It's his love that is the glory of God. His glorious grace. It's his mercy. It's his persistence. His love is unrelenting. That is his glory. 
His love is insatiable. That is his glory. His love is unfathomable. That is his glory. His love is unquenchable, undeniable, unthinkable, almost unbelievable. That is his glory. It could not be higher and it could not be deeper and it could not be wider and it could not be more intense and it could not be more beautiful. It could not be more splendid. It could not be more magnificent. That is the grace and the glorious grace of our almighty God. Praise God. And all of it is directed towards you, and all of it is directed towards me. It could not be better, but it gets a little bit better. And see, this is the glory of God. Behold the glory of God. Get a picture of this in your mind. Get, just get this concrete in your mind. The Bible, when it describes the culmination of God's dream from the foundation of the world, when it describes this, it describes it as a wedding. A wedding. And there'll be this great feast. That's why the church is called the bride and he is the groom. And there's going to be a wedding feast. In Revelation 19, it says that all the heavenly hosts will be invited to this wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All the heavenly hosts, every one of them. We're talking about Michael, the archangel. Man, this is a high-powered, five-star general angel. And Gabriel, mighty warrior of God. And the cherubim and the seraphim and all the heavenly hosts. We're talking about beings who have, got, uh, who have been around for billions of years and have fought on God's side since the time of the Great Rebellion and have uh, warred against demons throughout history. We're talking about angelic heroes, some of them commanding nations or principalities and powers and rulers and authorities who have not left their first estate like the demonic powers did, but have rather faithfully carried out God's plan. We're talking about incredible dignitaries here. They're going to be at this marriage supper of the Lamb. And frankly, some of them look pretty bizarre. Have you read the Bible? Uh, you know, some of them have, uh, you know, Ezekiel describes them as having eyes all around their head, you know. Some of them have got a couple of heads. They've got all these different wings. They've got all these different legs that look like, you know, giant deformed dragonflies or something. And, and uh, you know, with all due respect, to, you know, but they, they're bizarre looking. <laughs> kind of freaks me out when I think about this wedding feast where they're going to be there. It's like that bar scene in Star Wars, you know. It's like, oh, uh. <laughs> But it's going to be a great, it's going to be a great and glorious thing. But see, they will be displaying the glory of God like they always have, these great dignitaries. And when I think about humanity, the one distinctive that we bring to the table is that we, this little tiny people on this little planet, we rebelled and thought we were God and wanted to go our own way. And, and, and we required God himself to come down and go through what Jesus went through in order to be saved. That's our distinctive. We caused, you know, a little bit of trouble in this universe. Uh, you know, we were hard to govern. And even after he did this, we, we've done our best to try to run away from him. And now we're invited to this big banquet with these spiritual five-star generals. And I would think it would be very fair, more than fair, it would be gracious if the Bible described that we were going to come to this marriage supper and we are going to be servants. Heck, I'd be happy if we were just the field mice that were invited in to eat the crumbs that fell from the master's table. It's kind of embarrassing being a human going to a supper with these dignitaries. But now I read that the Bible says that we're not going to be field mice and we're not going to be servants. We're the reason for the wedding feast. We're the guest of honor. We're the bride. We're the reason for it happening. I mean, if you've been to a wedding lately, everything's about the bride. The groom, you know, the groom just sort of shows up there and stands. No, no one's paying attention to the groom. <laughs> Try not to look stupid to stand there, you know. And everybody else. And, you know, no one's giving them time. But then... Then there's a moment where all of a sudden the music starts. The organ hits or whatever music they're playing. And the doors open up. And then it's behold the bride. 
And every eye in the place is on that bride, that radiant bride. And she walks down there, every eye. She's the reason for the whole wedding. I, I, my, my, my daughter Alicia is getting married next year. and We've been playing different songs, trying out different songs for you know, what we should play at her wedding. And every one of them gets me bawling. <laughs> I, I got to do this wedding and I have no idea how I'm going to get through it because I, I can't, every time I picture it, I picture my, my, little, my little snorky. She's the one that used to snork when she was a kid. And I just picture her walking down. I can just see how beautiful she'll be with those, that white gown. And I can just picture this and this is my little girl. This is my, my little, she was pooping her pants yesterday, you know. Uh, it was, and now she is, look how beautiful she is and how radiant. And, 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 and everyone will be in awe of this and her groom will look on her with eyes I've seen before. Uh, you know, they, these eyes that are just, you know, that they can knock you through the wall because the love is there. The eyes that I had on my wedding day when I saw my, my bride and it's like, I get to be married to her. Why would she do this? I mean, there, there's just a love thing that's going on there. And see, now imagine vividly, if you can, the, this marriage supper where these five-star spiritual generals, these dignitaries, these rulers of galaxies and ordinances of creation are going to be here. And it says in Revelations 19 uh, that they feel lucky just to be looking in on this thing. And here comes the bride. Oh, this bride seems like just yesterday she was pooping her pants. Worse, she was wallowing in her poop. She was mired. She was dirty. She was, she was a slave to the enemy. She was prostituting herself. Ah, but the mighty king for took all and chased her and pursued her and got his beloved and cleaned her up and now behold the bride she is radiant she is beautiful she is the she reflects the glory of God she's decked in the righteousness of God she is holy and blameless in his sight the goal of all creation has been consummated it's been realized and Jesus the joy will be fulfilled as he sees the beauty of his bride walking down there he'll be overwhelmed as it says in the song of Solomon overwhelmed by her beauty. We ravish his heart. Uh, you know, he finds us all together lovely. The marriage supper of the Lamb will be there. The dream of creation will be fulfilled. No wonder it says it's to the praise of his glorious grace. The, he is, he is, his grace is highlighted as the bride. All the angelic beings say, wasn't she the same one that was in the mire, in the clay? And now you realize what the cross has done for this radiant bride. We are made, the bottom line is this. This is the greatest love story ever told. In fact, it's the greatest love story that ever could be told because it's, it's a story with love at an infinite pitch. An infinite God has gone an infinite distance becoming the opposite of himself. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God dove into what was out. There's nothing else he could have possibly done to rescue us, but rescue us he did. Uh, the king giving up his kingdom for not only a peasant girl, but for a peasant girl who wanted nothing more than to be away from him. This is a love story and you are at the center of it. The center of God's singularly loving vision that he's had from the moment of creation. And he looks upon us and now he just says this. I, I have loved you like this from the foundation of time. Will you now love me? Will you now reciprocate? Will you now embrace me the way I embrace you? Have eyes for me the way I have eyes for you? The love story is tainted to the extent that the bride doesn't reciprocate the passion and love for the groom. It's compromised to the degree that it's just a one-way sort of thing. He wants to win us over totally by his love. 
to have that love grip us to the core of our being and become integrated with to saturate every area of our life, an all-consuming vision and passion. If you think that Christianity is about meeting seven prerequisites to get fire insurance, you couldn't be more wrong. It's about a love story. It's about being gripped and defined by an all-consuming love, a vision for a love this world can't hardly begin to imagine. That's what it's about. Look again, look again at the love, at the passion, at the bride, at the groom. And let the love story permeate you. I want us to reflect on this for four minutes as I'm going to play a song now. Picture the wedding uh, just prior to the march. We'll see the march when we get there. This is just prior to the march. And this is a song sung by a third party about the, the, the bride and about the groom and about how beautiful the whole thing is. It's the perception of that beauty that fuels our transformation. Let's listen.
Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he beautiful? And he makes us, in fact, the whole relationship is about becoming beautiful. I encourage you to let his love penetrate. Just let his love, let, let him grab your heart the way you grabbed his heart and be transformed by that. Let me end with this question. Is there anybody here, would you close your eyes and pray just for a moment? You've never let the hound of heaven get you. If you're here this morning and would like to surrender, become part of this beautiful love story. Maybe you didn't realize that you're the central player in this whole drama. You want to surrender to this? It starts with just a yes in your heart. And I'd like to pray for you right here, right now. I'm not going to point you out or anything. I just want to pray for you. Would you raise your hand very high so I can see it? If you just want to surrender, in the back, a number of people, wonderful. Anybody else? Amen. Raise your hand really high. Just say, you know what? I want that love. I'll take that. Amen. Over here, over here, wonderful. Praise God. Anybody else? Take a moment more. Just surrender. It's not about being religious or anything like that. It's about saying yes to this, your creator who's been chasing you all of your life, even before that. Anybody else? Amen. There, a person, a young person there, another person there, another person there. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, I'm going to pray with you. In fact, we're all going to pray with you, and I encourage you to say it from your heart like a wedding vow. And then after the service, I'm going to ask you to uh, come up to this table and just get some information that will help you start walking in this drama, this love affair with God. But it starts with this prayer. Pray it with us. Heavenly Father, I never knew as clearly as I do now how much you love me, how you've been chasing me, how I've been running away from you. But I'm tired of running. And I right now surrender my life and all that's involved in it over to you. Help me, Lord, to see clearly your love and overwhelm me. Live inside of me. Transform me and make me into your beautiful bride. I love you and I thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the love story. <laughs> Welcome to the love story. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Could we stand? Could we stand? Uh, the prayer team is up here. If you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do so. Uh, the table over here, for those who, for the first time, surrendered their life to Christ, or maybe you're interested in doing that, I encourage you to come up here to the table and, and get some information. You really, really need help with that. Lord, just as we go out of here, let your loveliness always be before us and the motive, every, motive of our life, the vision of our life, the purpose of our life. God, give us singular vision, singular eyes for you like you have towards us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We love you. God bless you.